this, uh, this week, I uh, decided I was going to take my family uh, to go check out that new Pandora World at Animal Kingdom at, at Disney World. And, um, uh, you know, school's getting ready to start back. I thought it'd be a last little hurrah. And I really debated whether or not I would tell you about that experience, because if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Disney. You know that I love Disney, that I like get teary-eyed just whenever I see Mickey Mouse. Like, and I know that that alienates me from most of you. And, uh, and, you know, like the rest of development got canceled because the characters were alienating because no one could relate to them. And so I, I've kind of made it in my mind that I'm not going to talk about Disney with y'all because I, I want y'all to relate to me. But I'm going to tell you anyways. And, and the reason I'm going to tell you is because I really don't care about Avatar. The movie Avatar, I, I didn't think was that great. I'm not really that into it. Um, you know, I, I was kind of annoyed that Disney was building a whole land around this movie that came out 11 years ago that wasn't even that good. And, and so I feel like we can relate because, because I'm like you, like I don't really care about it. But I thought this would be a fun thing to do with the kids. And so um, taking them to see this, I, I woke Kelly up, my wife up at 5.15 in the morning so that she could feed our, our little boy Huck who's still nursing. And, um, and so I wanted to get that done. And again, I don't really care about this, but you know, we got up at 5.15. And then uh, I got the kids up at 6. Um, I had them pick out their clothes the night before, have them setting out so we didn't have to make any decisions so that you know, we could get them up, we could get them dressed, I could feed them because I'm not gonna stop on the way and we're not gonna eat at Disney. And so you know, we did that. We got done around 6.30. My goal was that we would leave the house by 6.45 in the morning. Again, I don't really care about it, though. Like, I'm not really that into it. And so we, we, do, we leave by about 6.50. So we're a little bit behind my schedule, but it was okay. Um, I, I put a buffer in because you never know about I-4, but, I mean, it was really early in the morning. And so uh, we made it down I-4 in great time. I mean, there was no traffic. It was great. So we, we pulled up to Animal Kingdom at about 7.20 in the morning. And so we parked the car. It was about 7.30 by the time we actually made it up to the entrance, which was an hour and a half before the park opened. But again, y'all, I'm not like, I'm like you. I don't really care about this. And so we, uh, we're waiting in line and we're pretty close up. There's only about a handful of people that are, that are there before us. And so we're waiting for them to let us in. Well, Disney, they let you in before the park opens. And uh, again, I didn't like look at a blog to see when they let you in, but because but, I'm like you. And so um, they let us in a little bit early. And so my family of seven, including two kids and a double stroller, sprinted as fast as we could through Animal Kingdom to get to the, the new Pandora world. Again, I don't really care about it. And we get there, and, uh, and they, they actually open the rides a little bit early. You can, you can actually start going on the rides before the park officially opens. And I'm so glad that that happened because we were able to get on the, the main Pandora ride before the park opened. And by the time we came out, which was still one minute before the park technically opened, the line was already 160 minutes long. And so, uh, but again, I don't care. I'm just, I'm like you. It's not a big deal to me. Uh, but this ride uh, was pretty incredible. And, and I know I say everything Disney's incredible. And so it doesn't mean anything when I say that to you, but it was like, it was a different kind of experience than I've ever um, imagined. It, it, it's a ride where if you haven't seen the movie Avatar, 
Avatar takes place in this, in this magical, beautiful world called Pandora, and, and there's these dragon-like things, they're called banshees, uh, that people ride on in this land. And so the ride, you're simulating riding on top of a banshee. And, um, and so I'm not like into it, and I didn't really like the movie or anything <laughs> like that. But, um, but so you ride on these banshees, and these banshees are incredible. And, uh, and so you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, you, you are entered into Pandora. And, and y'all, I don't know if it, it wasn't like I thought that I was really there, but the, the beauty of what I was looking at and the way it, it, it felt, it felt like you were actually on a living being and the way the wind kind of blew in your face and the smells that they had created, like it was this out of world experience. And I remember just, just riding uh, on this ride. And then when it came to an end, I, I was just in awe. Because what I had just witnessed was beautiful. I mean, this land that, that they've created was magnificent. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. And the sense of flying that I got while writing this, I felt so free. And I remember when it got over, I just wanted to like stand there and like look at the people who were riding next to me and being like, did you, did you just experience what I experienced? It was like, it was like in that moment, I knew I was made for this. And I'm serious, though. If you were to ride it, I think you would have that same experience. You would have that same experience because what I was made for was for beauty. Beauty that goes beyond my understanding and description. And I was made for freedom. I felt for the two minutes, however long the ride was, I felt so free. Now, this is Sparky. Um, again, I'm not really that into it, and I'm not going to keep wearing them because I know you're not going to pay attention if I do that. But, um, but again, I'm like you. I'm not into it. But this one experience was so awe-inspiring that it made me think, I think I just got a taste of what we were all created for. Jesus said that he came so that we would be free. St. Irenaeus said that the glory of God is man fully alive. During this experience, I felt fully alive. When was the last time you had that feeling like, man, I was made for this? When was the last time you felt truly free? Did you feel free walking into this church service? Do you feel free in your work? Do you feel free in your marriage and in your relationships with other people? If not, you can be. We were made for freedom. So where do we begin? Well, in the beginning, God. In other words, when the world began, God was already there. According to the Bible, God is the only one who has no beginning and everything that exists is grounded in God. It finds its origin and its being in God. So in the beginning, God created us. And one of us, or, or rather, I should say, some of us wrote about it. Now, before we look at what we were made for from this passage, from Genesis 1, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, uh, we have to address the, the passage. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, my guess is that one of your big problems with Christianity is how you think Christians have to view science. And even if you are a Christian, this might be a place of tension for you. 
And I get it. I went to Christian high school. I went to a Christian high school where our biology class spent half a semester learning how to fight against evolution and prove that Adam and Eve really did ride on the back of velociraptors. Like I spent an entire semester. We didn't even, we didn't even dissect a frog, which is like the cool thing about biology class. And so, so I get it. I get why you think that. And I'm not saying that God couldn't create the world in six literal days. Of course he could. He's God. But the Bible doesn't demand that you believe that. We have to read the Bible in its context, in its own world. The Bible didn't just drop out of the sky. It didn't just appear on some magical golden plates. The Bible is written by people. Real people living in real times and real places to other real people who are going through real stuff. Now, as a Christian, I believe the Bible is inspired by God. That these real people were writing under the authority of God's Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. The Bible is living and active. And I've experienced the, Bible, the power of that. As I've opened up God's word, I have been astonished by, by, by my encounters with God as I'm reading it. But I've also experienced it as a very human book. One of the things I love about the Gospel of John, one of the, one of the books in the New Testament, is how oftentimes, and we talk about this almost every Easter, it's the, it's the same joke we make every year, but, but I love how in the Gospel of John, which was written by the Apostle John, how often he lets us know what a fast runner he is. He actually, he says uh, three times within 10 verses that he got to the empty tomb after Jesus' resurrection before Peter. There's something very human about that. The Bible is a very human book. And because it's a very human book, we have to read the Bible, listen to God's word in its own world, in its own context. The creation account is written as poetry. It's a song. We just heard it read. Even in the English translation, you get a sense of the poetry. My Old Testament professor, Bruce Walkie, calls the book of Genesis ideological art. He says it's literature that communicates doctrine in an artful way, and we have to read it that way. The German poet Johann von Goethe says, if you want to understand a poet, you must go to that poet's land. So in order for us to even begin this discussion, in order for us to understand the poetry of Genesis 1, we first have to go to the poet's land. And in that land, there was not a debate going on about evolution. No biblical scholar or theologian believes the author of Genesis was thinking about combating evolution when he wrote his account. So what was he thinking about? Who was he writing to? Well, in the ancient Near East, every creation account is a violent one. They all involve some kind of battle. But here we have a creation account where there is one God who is three persons working together to make something beautiful. Verse one, it said, in the beginning, God. Then in verse two, it talks about the spirit of God hovering. And in the Hebrew, the image that's being painted there is like a mother bird fluttering over her young. It's a very warm and inviting image. So you have God and you have the spirit of God creating the world through the word of God. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And the word of God is Jesus, the son of God. 
The Gospel of John begins very similar to Genesis. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him. And that the Word took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. So you see what the poet is doing here? He's telling us that the creation story is not about combating some kind of scientific theory. It's not about combating evolution, but it's about the idea that the world was not created from a place of violence and power, but out of an overflow of love. The poet is saying that the, the world that you and I inhabit was created by a loving triune God, a God who is in relationship, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And not only that, the poet says over and over again that God declares what he makes is good. One Old Testament scholar said that it was intellectually revolutionary for the book of Genesis to say that the material world was good. You will not find that in any other ancient Near East thought. That thought is original to this creation poem. Now, could the poet have also been communicating that God created the world in six literal days and that our world is less than 10,000 years old? Yes, but the Bible, when we read it in its own world, in its own context, in its own land, doesn't demand that we believe that. Listen, I don't know where I land on all this, but reading the Bible on its own terms frees me to explore these kinds of questions, and it frees you to explore them too. And if what's keeping you from believing in Jesus is science, it doesn't have to. If, if, to, if tomorrow it was proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earth was millions of years old, it would not change my belief that God created everything and that the Bible is his word because the Bible never demanded that I believe in a literal six-day creation. So start there. And in the Hebrew tradition, rabbis talk about scripture having 70 different faces. And that every time you read it, you can discover something new. And, and, and you discover something new each and every time. You see, to them, it wasn't about getting it right. It wasn't about being right. Because there's lots of ways to be right in all the wrong ways. So rightness isn't the ultimate goal. For them, it was learning to dance with God's word. There's an Al Pacino movie that came out, I think, like 20 years ago called Scent of a Woman. And I don't really remember the movie. I just remember that Al Pacino was blind in the film. And, and, but there's this one scene that has always stayed with me. And it's, it's a scene where Al Pacino is at this fancy restaurant. And he's there with a, with, a young cup, with a young man and a young woman. And during the dinner, the, the band's starting to play. And, and, and Al Pacino says to the young woman, will you tango with me? And remember, he's blind, and, 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 and you can kind of tell that she's a little bit uncomfortable. She doesn't know, like, how this will work. Like, no one else in the restaurant is dancing. And she responds, I'd be afraid of making a mistake. To which Al Pacino then says, no mistakes in the tango. Not like life. That's what makes the tango so great. You make a mistake, get all tangled up. You just tangle on. So why not give it a try? And she does. And it's a delightful scene to watch. See, you and I, we are invited to dance with God's word. We're invited to listen to its rhythm and its musicality. And then we move in response to it. And sometimes we get all tangled up. 
but then we tangle on. You dance with God's word, but you also interrogate it and you challenge it and you, and you question and prod and poke at it. You let it get under your skin. And when you do that, as you read God's word, you begin to realize that you're actually the one not reading it. It's reading you. And that's when you begin to see that it's not just a human book. And this happens over and over again. And each time you see something new and you begin to dance slightly different. So my prayer for us as we look at this very familiar passage over the next few weeks is that we would see something new, that we would hear the music and begin to dance, that we would see what it is that we were made for. When Al Pacino looks at the young woman and tells her about the tango, what he's inviting her to is freedom. It's not about getting it right. It's about responding to the music. So let's go back to the text and, 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 and try to listen that way. And we're only going to look at two verses. We're going to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. To be image bearers, to be his image bearers, this, we were made for this. Along with the rest of creation, we all have drives for food and sex and survival, but what distinguishes us from everything else is the image of God and a passionate appetite for God. As the psalmist cries out in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. See, our image of God is what sets us apart from all else in creation, but it's also what sets us apart for God. Even before you became a Christian, even if you never become a Christian, you've been set apart for God, Christian or not. You are an image bearer of God. And every image bearer of God has a heart bent towards God. So what does that mean? Well, it means that in this messed up, broken world, whether we call it God or not, our heart is always bent towards restoration and redemption. That's the reason everyone, why, why you were all so mad at the Bachelorette finale. And I don't watch it. I just have Twitter. Uh, but, but it's because there's something in us that longs for it to be right for good to prevail. There's something in us that longs for everything that is broken to become unbroken. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've hurt, no matter what family you are from, your socioeconomic class, your culture, your color of your skin or your gender identity, you are an image bearer of the God who created all of the universe. You have tremendous value and dignity, not based on your performance, but just because of who you are. I can't tell you how often when I'm doing pastoral counseling that the only thing I really need to say to anyone who comes into me is, is you matter. We can be talking about past abuse or blatant sin in the person's life, or, or, or she could be talking about how manipulative her husband is, or he can be talking about how much he hates his job, but the minute they hear the words, you matter. The tears come. It happens every time. Why? Well, Jesus said that he has come 
so that we will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is most true about you is that you matter. At the core of your design is the truth that you matter. Now, this is where science can't help us. Science says human beings are more complex than other mammals, but there is no scientific basis for saying a person has dignity, value, or worth. A scientist, apart from belief in God, cannot in good conscience look at you and say you matter. They can say you are matter. No, okay, I am not doing that one again. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., one of our former chief justices, once wrote, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to man significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The image of God is the only way that you and I can actually hear and believe that you matter. And again, this isn't because of performance. This is because of who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how low you've gone. You are valuable to God. You've been set apart by God. You are God's image. You belong to him. You matter. And if this is true, that also means no matter what they've done or how low they've gone, they matter too. Person who cuts you off in traffic on the way here is made in the image of God. The person you made fun of on the playground back in elementary school is made in the image of God. The atheist professor who used to make you feel so dumb is made in the image of God. The transgender 7-Eleven clerk is made in the image of God. Donald Trump is made in the image of God. The abortion doctor is made in the image of God. The babies that he aborts are made in the image of God. The immigrant who can barely speak English is made in the image of God. The woman with cerebral palsy who is so hard to understand is made in the image of God. That friend who keeps getting it wrong is made in the image of God. The baby who's born and only has a few days to live is made in the image of God. Every person who comes across your path is made in the image of God. And if you believe that, if you believe what the Bible teaches us about what we were made for, this is a radical belief. This is a belief that completely shapes how we live and interact in the world that is different from any other philosophical or religious worldview. If you and I, if we really believe that every person we come in contact with is made in the image of God, that they have tremendous value and dignity, not because of what they can do, not because of how they can perform for us, but simply because they are, because of who they are, it will change how we speak to each other or about each other. It changes how we serve each other. In Genesis 9, God says, For each man, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. For in the image of God, God has made man. Why is God going to hold us accountable for, for the life of other humans? Because murder is against God's law? No. He says, because humans are the image of God. There is inherent worth in them. They matter. They are set apart for him. Image of God goes deeper than the law of God. So before someone is a breaker of God's law, they are the image of God. What that means 
It means that in their, their most deep and true state, they are image of God. So how do you treat people who break God's law? How do you think about them? How do you think about yourself when you break God's law? Image of God goes deeper than the law of God. So the image of God changes the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. It also changes the way we understand what we were made for. As images, we are to reflect. In fact, that's the only thing we can do. We can only reflect. I recently decided I was gonna take up painting. Um, and for my very first go at it, I decided I was gonna try to paint Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, um, and I discovered that painting faces is really hard. And, uh, and so I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just doing more abstract things. Uh, but let's say I was good at painting faces. And let's say I painted your face. And it was an accurate reflection of you. Centuries later, someone could look at that painting and if they wanted to know what you look like, it would represent you to them. When God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground, God is saying, I created you human beings to reflect my glory and my love and my goodness and my character to all creation. And if you will just reflect my character properly, you will represent me to the whole world and everything in the world. All of the creation will know who I am through you. But he is the, is the key. He's the starting point. Like the moon gives no light without the sun, it is his character that you and I were made to reflect. And we're dependent on him. Listen, if we choose not to be, if we choose uh, not to be dependent on God, that doesn't mean that you and I will then be independent. We'll just choose to be dependent on something that's much less. Because part of our design, a part that we cannot escape no matter how much we try, is that we are dependent on something outside of ourselves in order to find worth and value and glory. So you can say, I don't, think, I don't care what God thinks of me or I don't even think there is a God. It just matters what I think of myself, but that doesn't really work. Because we are images of something else. It's not inside us. So if God isn't our starting point, something will be. It'll be a family. It'll be a job. It'll be a, another human being. Our glory will be dependent on human approval or professional success because we're all looking to have someone say to us, you matter. And we can't create that. We can't generate that on our own. So let me tell you how this ends up working out in real life. Let's, let's say that, uh, that you get it and you know that your value comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God and that you are a reflection of his character. So when you then enter into marriage, you will be free to serve and love with abandon because that's the character of the one you're reflecting. And it's a kind of serving and love that's not dependent on the other person keeping up their end of the bargain. You can love them, but you don't need them in order to get significance. You're free. You really are free. But let's say you do need them to give you your worth and your significance. You'll crush them. They will never be able to meet your needs. And we're going to look at this more closely next week, but but I know some of you are in marriages right now that are completely falling apart. 
my question to you is, have you needed your spouse to give you your significance? Has that crushed them? And maybe it's them who messed up and cheated. But how long have your expectations been crushing them before that? Or parenting. If your value comes from being made in the image of God, you can walk through any horrible choice your child makes with their best in mind and not your reputation. You can be their greatest advocate. But if you need your children to give you value, you'll crush them with expectations. And listen, you might have kids that really want to please you. And so maybe on the outside, they'll do exactly what you say. But listen, they won't be who God had in mind when he thought them up. They'll be so much less. They'll be what you had in mind. Or take friendship. If your value comes from he's my friend or she's my friend, you're gonna put all kinds of expectations on that friendship and you're probably not ever gonna tell them the truth, especially when they hurt you because you don't wanna seem like a burden. You don't wanna seem like, you don't wanna do anything that's gonna mess up the friendship. Or you become one of those people that's constantly telling them that they're not meeting your expectations as a friend and and you're gonna put so much pressure on them that way because you need them to be a good friend to you. So what do you do when you realize that this is you? You change where you're reflecting. Your reflection reflects. What you reflect on changes your reflection. If you want to change what you're reflecting, if you want to stop worrying so much about what other people think, if you want to stop worrying so much if does she love me, has she been treating me right, if you want to change putting all your your energy into am I going to get this next milestone in my career, a first step is believing the image of God, but that's not enough. You can't just say, okay, I'm made in the image of God, and in order to be what God had in mind when he thought me up, I need to make God the center of my life. It doesn't work that way. So many people come into my office, and they say something like, I I know I'm not doing a good job with God. I really need to get him back in the center. I need to to be more focused on God. But listen, nothing's going to change for that person by just saying that. Just knowing that they need God in the center isn't going to change them. They have to be attracted to God. So how do we make God more attractive to us? I have a friend from high school who's a missionary in in Thailand, and I was reading his latest blog post, and he was talking about how lately he's been giving people the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, that he meets. And the Jesus Storybook Bible is a children's Bible. It's my favorite children's Bible. If you don't have it, you should get it. Um, and, And in this blog, he was talking about how amazed he was at the response that he's been getting from these adults who are reading this children's Bible. And he talked specifically about this one woman that he gave it to who had no prior exposure to any kind of church or our Bible or Christianity. She had nothing except this children's Bible. And after he gave it to her, she came back the next day and she said she read the whole thing. She read the whole thing in one night. You see, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, the author takes all the stories of the Old Testament and shows how every bit of it is about Jesus. Moses, David, Jonah, they're all about Jesus. And this woman told my friend that I couldn't stop reading this children's Bible because there's something so attractive about Jesus. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says, Christ, Jesus Christ is the image of God. 
And then Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. Looking at Jesus is what attracts us to God. So if you're having a hard time placing God in the center, have you been looking at Jesus? Or have you been reading God's word to try to get it right? Have you been reading God's word to find your next best right steps to live your best life now? Or have you been reading it to see Jesus? The Bible is a very human book, but it's also a spirit-inspired book because there are 70 different ways to see every text because in every text, it's about an infinite God who put on flesh and dwelt among us because everything in here ultimately points to Jesus. First painting I did of Jesus, I have it hanging in my office, but I have it behind my door uh, because it's not good and I don't want anyone else to notice it. And you can't really see it if you come in and see me. But from where I sit to work on and write my sermons, I see it. So every time I, I look up from my laptop or I look up from a book I'm reading or I look up from the Bible, I, I see this not very pretty picture of Jesus. But I can't help but see the beauty of a God who would die for me. Jesus Christ died for you, not because your performance made you worth it to him. In fact, it's because of your performance that he had to die. He died for you because you're his, because he made you in his image, because you belong to him, because you matter. And the more we reflect on him, the more we reflect on Christ, the more we reflect Christ. The more we enter into this dance with him, this dance with God's word, who is Jesus. When we get tangled up, we just tangle on because in doing so, we begin to hear the song of the one who thought we were worth it to die. The apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 15 and 18, now to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What he's really saying here, what he's meaning here is that once you begin to see Jesus and God's word, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. It's not about you and what you can do and how you can get better. It's about him. It's about seeing him. He goes on and says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. This is what we're made for. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you in your infinite wisdom chose to put on flesh and, and become one of us so that we could reflect what you had in mind when you thought us up. In Jesus, we see what it means to be fully alive as a human. And Father, I pray that as we, as we wrestle with over the next few weeks, what it means to be made in your image, what it means uh, to, to be in relationship with one another and to work and, and to serve, like as we look at all of that, help us to see Jesus. Help us to reflect on him so that we are a reflection of him to a world that desperately needs to know that this is not all there is. 
And we pray this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.